Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Willy Harry Stee, Harry Dick John Harry three one two three Neds Richard two Henry's four five six then who Edward four five we're up to Edward the fifth in this episode it should be a fairly short episode because he didn't reign for very long in fact he had well it depends whether you count Lady Jane Grey as officially being a monarch she reigned for nine days Edward the fifth reigned for seventy eight days so yes. It was a short reign and a short life. Now, I was talking to a um, a young person the other day. We'll call him Josh because, well, because that's his name. And he was saying how he used to listen to a lot of science podcasts because he was really interested in the world and the universe and the future. But he had had to stop listening to science podcasts because he was starting to find them incredibly depressing, worried about the future and constantly being reminded of how we were all going to hell in a handcart. Although as a young person, he didn't use that phrase. And so he'd started listening to history podcasts instead, because, as he said, you can't change history. You're not responsible for history. Nothing you do is going to influence the past and what happened, which is true, obviously. But at the same time, we did get into a discussion about how interpretations of the past change and some elements of the past historians are always arguing about because they don't have the full facts. So their interpretation of it can vary wildly. And then there's also the beetroot-faced brigade who are obsessed with wokeness and about how people are trying to rewrite the past which they're not. They're just trying to look at things in a different light and perhaps emphasise some aspects over others. And, you know, we can look at, say, the reputation of King Richard I, Richard the Lionheart, how a huge part of history, he was considered by the English to be this great hero, this Christian warrior who went and smote the infidel, but now is seen as being this evil warlike crusader. And so, yes, our way we view the past can change, but the facts can't change unless new facts come to light or are reassessed, or you could get historical artefacts on documents that can be reassessed and reappraised, and we can realise they mean something slightly different to what we thought they did. And Edward V's life and death and his reign, that is something that is still being argued about, because at the heart of it is this great unsolved murder mystery, probably the greatest murder mystery from history. And it is still not solved. We cannot conclusively say 
what happened to Edward V, how he died, where he died, if he was murdered, who killed him. And so I think anybody talking about Edward V, as I am in this episode, has to make a choice of what they think happened, which is what I will be doing later on. Because Edward V and his younger brother, Richard of Shrewsbury, the Duke of York, were the famous princes in the tower, even though technically Edward was a king. These two young boys who went into the Tower of London and after a couple of months were never seen again. So Edward was born in 1470 and he is presumed to have died fairly soon after in 1483. And he was the uncrowned King of England from the 9th of April 1483 to the 26th of June, which is when King Richard III got himself crowned as king. And Edward was officially king, even though there had been no coronation. It's an automatic process. And Edward was one of our three uncrowned monarchs. There was Edward VIII, who abdicated in the 1930s before he was crowned. And there was Lady Jane Grey, who we talked about earlier. Prince Edward's father was Edward IV. Now, it's quite complicated because everybody has the same name. I will tend to call Edward Jr., Prince Edward and the father, King Edward or Edward IV. And we saw how Edward IV was helped to the throne in 1461 by Warwick, the kingmaker. And he sat there for nine years until in 1470, Warwick, the kingmaker, fell out with him and helped him off the throne for a short period. And it was during that short period that his son, Prince Edward, was born to his wife, Elizabeth Woodville, and she was uh, taking sanctuary at Westminster Abbey, and she was living in the abbot's house there, and that's where Prince Edward was born. And his father, Edward IV, came roaring back the following year in 1471, defeated and killed Warwick, and regained the throne. So just to remind you about who Prince Edward's mother was, it was Elizabeth Woodville this controversial figure who King Edward had married in secret because she was essentially a commoner. And he was being lined up by Warwick the Kingmaker to, to marry into the French royalty. And Edward said, I'm really sorry, but I've actually secretly married this commoner, Elizabeth Woodville, which was the start of the falling out between these two men. And it looked like Edward had done it because he was absolutely infatuated with Elizabeth. Later on, various people tried to claim that he had been the victim of witchcraft, that Elizabeth Woodville and her mother had uh, used spells to captivate him. But it seems to have been probably a sexual infatuation which grew into, well, they did seem to be very much in love, but the damage was done. He had married her. She had been married before to a guy called Sir John Grey, uh, a sort of middling knight and she had two sons already, Thomas and Richard. Her father was Richard Woodville, another middling knight, and he became the first Earl Rivers because he was ennobled after Elizabeth's marriage. Um, Edward hurriedly put in place sort of promotions for all her family so that she didn't look quite so common. And her brother Anthony was the second Earl Rivers. So as soon as Edward IV got back onto the throne, he made Edward Jr. the Prince of Wales. And on the 3rd of July, 1471, in the Parliament chamber, the Lords Spiritual and Temporal took an oath of allegiance to him as heir to the throne. So he was officially instated as the successor to Edward IV. And the rule of his household and his lands was given to a council which would be in place until he came of age at 14. And this council was headed by his mother, Elizabeth, and her brother, who we just talked about, Prince Edward's uncle, Anthony Woodville, the second Earl Rivers, alongside two other uncles from his father's side of the family, George, the Duke of Clarence, and Richard, the Duke of Gloucester, the future Richard III, who will play quite a big part in this episode. 
Now, the Duke of Clarence, George, only lasted a few years on the council. If you remember, he was the somewhat flaky and unstable brother who'd constantly switched sides in the wars between the Lancastrians and the Yorkists, sometimes plotting against his own brother, King Edward IV, and sometimes fighting alongside him. But King Edward forgave him for a while, but following yet another plot in 1478, Edward had Clarence killed reportedly by being drowned in a butt of Malmsey wine, although this might have been a joke about his alcoholism. Whatever the case, he was kicked into touch. In Shakespeare's play, Richard III, Richard gets the blame for the Duke of Clarence's death as part of his own plot to take over the throne, but it was big brother Edward who was actually responsible. So young Prince Edward was made Keeper of the Realm in 1475 while his father was away in France. And in order to take on such a lofty position, he first had to be knighted and signed into the Order of the Garter, even though he was only five years old at the time. King Edward was basically making sure that the succession was watertight. And as he grew older, Prince Edward was mainly brought up by the Queen's brother, Anthony Woodville, the second Earl Rivers, at his castle in Ludlow in the Welsh Marches, this... um, strategic tranche of land on the border between England and Wales. It was customary at the time for sons of noblemen to be sent away to someone else to be educated and prepared for adulthood, away from their mothers and fathers, a bit like how certain knobs insist on sending their tiny children away to boarding school these days. There's this sort of idea that they'll be toughened up and get a better education if they're not in the bosom of the family and distracted by things like love and affection. In a letter Edward IV sent to Anthony Woodville, Earl Rivers, he set out exactly how he wanted his son to be brought up and how he wanted Rivers' household to be run. And it's an, it's an interesting insight into the upbringing of a member of the upper classes in the Middle Ages. So there was a letter that Edward sent to Earl Rivers and the Bishop of Rochester in 1473 It is called Ordinances Touching the Guiding of Our Said Son's Person, which we commit to the said Earl Rivers. First, we will that our said first begotten son shall arise every morning at a convenient hour according to his age. There's a lot of stuff about exactly what Edward should be doing and who he should be doing it with at any given point during the day, laid out item by item. There's a fairly rigid timetable, much like in a school. And a lot of it involves religious services and rituals such as matins and mass and evensong. Uh, And there's also quite a lot about uh, strict mealtimes. And King Edward also stipulated that his said son should be surrounded by the sons of noble lords and gentlemen. So uh, we have items such as, we will that our said son have his breakfast immediately after his mass. And between that and his meat, to be occupied in such virtuous learning as his age shall suffer to receive, and that he be at his dinner at a convenient hour, and thereat to be honourably served, and his dishes to be borne by worshipful folks and squires having on our livery, and that all other officers and servants give their due attendance according to their offices. And then there's the next item. That no man sit at his board, but such as shall be thought fit, by the discretion of the Earl Rivers, and that then be read before him such noble stories as behoveth to a prince to understand and know, and that the communication at all times in his presence be of virtue, honour, cunning, wisdom, and deeds of worship, and of nothing that should move or stir him to vice. Item. We will that after his meat, in eschewing of idleness, he be occupied about his learning, and after, in his presence, be showed all such convenient disports and exercises as behoveth his estate to have experience in. So, sports in the afternoon. Uh, Then there's another item. We will that after his supper he have all such honest disports as may be conveniently devised for his recreation. Then it's bed at eight with a crew to watch over him and keep him safe as he sleeps. And one often quoted section reads, No one in the household should be a customable swearer, a brawler, backbiter, common hazarder, an adulterer or user of words of ribaldry. 
And people usually point out that that's a bit rich coming from such a famous adulterer as King Edward. So that was some of the basics of the education of an upper class boy at the time. And, you know, the debate about what one should teach one's children, what they should learn at school, is one that is ever ongoing. You know, what are the basics? You know, back in the day, the public schools were essentially set up to train boys to be able to take over their father's jobs in the city, that they'd be able to, at their gentleman's club, if someone gave a quote in Latin, they could come back and top them with a quote in Greek. So school is a way of training you for the life that you're going to lead. And King Edward, you know, went to a lot of effort to say this is how his son should be brought up and this is what he needed to be, to be a king. But really, of all the things you should do as a father, bringing up a son is spend time with them, give them love, give them affection, let them know that there is somebody there for them, spend time with them, go to their sports days, be involved in, in what they're doing academically, be interested in that. When there's more, read to them at night. All these things are important. And the most important thing you can do, particularly if you're a medieval king, is don't die young. If you look at it, all of the kings who came to the throne as children did pretty badly. Certainly they had done up to this point. Henry III, Richard II, Henry VI. And poor little Prince Edward was only 12 when he heard that his father had died suddenly. And the king's will named Uncle Richard as protector during the minority of his son. I mean, this type of education, it does seem to have worked in many ways, just like an Eton education. The boy was self-confident, bright, comfortable in the company of adults. He enjoyed discussing the world and its affairs. He had a glittering future to look forward to. So at this point, everybody thought Uncle Richard, Richard of Gloucester, was a jolly good fellow and would be the perfect person to bring up little Prince Edward if anything went wrong. Um, as I say, Edward had been brought up at Ludlow Castle in the west of England, close to the Welsh border. And on receiving the news of the king's death, Earl Rivers set off to escort Prince Edward safely to London, where his mother, Elizabeth Woodville, was waiting for him with Edward's younger brother, Prince Richard, also known as Richard of Shrewsbury uh, and Richard of York. Shrewsbury being where he was born and York being his official title as the younger brother of the heir to the throne. Earl Rivers was travelling with another Richard in his party. This is one of Elizabeth Woodville's sons from her first marriage, before she married Edward IV, and this is Sir Richard Grey, uh, who is therefore the half-brother of Prince Edward. Edward's uncle, who's now his chief protector, Richard of Gloucester, had been in York and he rode south to intercept the party at Stony Stratford. And Richard spent a pleasant evening dining with Earl Rivers and Richard Grey. But the next day, good old Uncle Richard, Richard of Gloucester, had them both arrested, claiming that the Queen's family were planning to seize power by force and were plotting to have him murdered. And he had them locked up in Pontefract Castle. And when news of these events reached London, the Queen took sanctuary with her younger son, Richard, Duke of York, and her daughters. Now, Richard promised these three nobles that they would be fine, they'd be well looked after, and he was simply going to look into the truth of this plot against him. But two months later, they were all three of them executed on these trumped-up charges of treason. And Richard sold this to the people with the lie that he'd been bravely protecting the boy from his own family. But to backtrack a bit, Richard of Gloucester uh, led the party into London and put Prince Edward into the Tower of London for his own safekeeping, announcing that he would stay there until his coronation. A date was set for the coronation, but Richard repeatedly postponed it, playing for time. He even somehow managed to persuade Elizabeth Woodville to send his other nephew, Prince Edward's brother Richard, to the Tower for safekeeping. He got a pet priest, Cardinal Bourchier, who apparently was acting in good faith, and he persuaded Queen Elizabeth to surrender her second son um, so that the two of them could get ready together for this coronation. And she was given a lot of assurances. 
And rather naively, nobody at the time suspected that Richard might be plotting to take the throne. Nobody seriously believed that he would consider doing that. I mean, more fool them. And this was despite locking up members of Elizabeth Woodville's family. And people perhaps trusted Richard because you could behave as badly as you liked, but it was just not done to depose a rightful monarch. And it was especially not done to have them bumped off. And Prince Edward, Edward V, was the rightful heir to the throne. He was already king, even though he had not been crowned yet. And he and Richard were taken to inner apartments at the Tower and sightings of them became quite rare. And by the end of the summer of 1483, they'd disappeared from public view altogether. A doctor who regularly visited Prince Edward said that Edward begged for confession every time because he believed that death was facing him. Edward, at least, realised what was going on. And Uncle Richard was indeed cooking up a scheme. He got another of his pet priests to preach a sermon claiming that Edward IV had been contracted to marry a Lady Eleanor Butler before he married Elizabeth Woodville, which made his marriage to Elizabeth invalid and their children together illegitimate, which meant that Edward and Prince Richard were struck off the royal list. And Uncle Richard was able to declare himself king in the summer of 1483, after which point, as I say, the two princes in the tower were never seen again. The children of Richard's older brother, George, Duke of Clarence, but of Malmsey Wyme, under the strict laws of primogeniture, they should have inherited, but they were also barred from the throne. When Richard drew up a legal document the following year called the Titulus Regius, it seems he'd also been planning at one point to declare his brother, Edward IV, illegitimate as well, to try and sort of clear the whole slate and leave him as the last man standing. But it was all getting a bit complicated. And there was a danger that Richard himself might be drawn into the murky waters of illegitimacy. But whatever the case, he has this document presented to Parliament, the Titulus Regis, this legal document which says that Edward V and his brother Richard had no claim to the throne. They were illegitimate and he was the rightful king. And this all happened so fast and Richard did it so thoroughly. He even had a small coup where he rounded up all the surviving supporters of his brother Edward IV and either imprisoned or, or in one case executed them so that there was no real opposition. And nobody knows what actually happened to the two little boys. The most common theory is that they were murdered on the orders of their uncle King Richard, which to me makes perfect sense. Their mother had sought sanctuary in Westminster Abbey, fearing for her life. Richard had executed their uncle Earl Rivers and their half-brother Richard Grey. He had rounded up or executed the chief supporters of King Edward IV. He had declared the boys to be illegitimate. He'd cleared the path of any obstacles and basically snatched the throne for himself. He is the most obvious candidate and he has acted ruthlessly and shamelessly to take the throne, throwing members of his own close family under the bus. Later on, in Tudor times, Thomas More wrote a history of Richard III, and he declared that they had been smothered to death by their own pillows by a certain Sir James Tyrrell. But at the time, it was just they weren't there anymore. Nobody spoke about it, and nobody really knew what had happened. The other competing theory is that Henry VII, the first of the Tudors, who basically brought to an end the Plantagenet line when he defeated King Richard at the Battle of Bosworth and, and Richard died, there is one theory that he was to blame for the death of these princes because he needed to get them out of the way because if Richard was deposed or killed, then Edward V would be the rightful heir. So Henry VII needed to somehow get people into the Tower of London and bump off the princes before he came to the throne to make his place secure. And it was later Tudor historians who stitched up Richard and framed him to look like the guilty one so that Henry was off the hook 
and had been justified in killing Richard at the Battle of Bosworth and taking the throne. Um, this is all a little bit unlikely. But there is this group called the Ricardians who, whose main aim is to reinstate Richard III as a great man and a great king. But to me, it all seems a bit ludicrous and unlikely. Now, later on, there were various pretenders who appeared claiming to be the young Edward. Um, the most famous of them was a guy called Perkin Warbeck. And we, we'll look at this in the next episode. But um, there are some theories that say he was indeed uh, one of the princes in the tower. But none of this can be proved. And as I say, this is the big mystery. Nobody will ever, unless new documents come to light or new evidence comes to light. Nobody will ever be able to say definitively what happened to the princes in the tower. In 1674, the bones of two children were discovered by workmen rebuilding a staircase in the tower. These were then taken to Westminster Abbey and buried there on the orders of King Charles II in an urn bearing the names of Edward and Richard. They were re-examined in 1933 where it was discovered that the skeletons were incomplete and had been mixed up with animal bones. And this is before DNA testing. So it's never actually been proved that these bones belonged to the princes. They could have been buried there in the Tower of London at any time. Permission for a new examination has always been refused. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, there's a big conspiracy going on here. Perhaps they were aliens. As I say, we won't know. It would be useful to, to properly test those bones. Huh? But as I say, King Richard III had acted so fast and so decisively that it was like, whoa, what's happened? And nobody was able to stop him and stand up to him. And there he was on the throne. There was opposition to him. And by September, the rebels were promoting another candidate for the throne, Henry Tudor which makes one think that by that point, everybody must have believed that the princes were dead. Nobody was supporting Edward V as the next monarch. They had shifted to Henry Tudor. And we'll see what happens there in the next episode. But as I say, to me, the most obvious explanation for what happened to these boys is that Richard had them killed one way or another, had them disappeared because he was the one who would most immediately benefit from this. And he, as we have seen, acted in such um, a cold-hearted manner that he was the obvious candidate. So we'll look at Richard's reign, the last of the Plantagenets, in the next episode. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So that was the brief, sad life of Edward V. And uh, to join me as a guest today to talk about it, I'm going to, um, it's something of a departure. Normally, I have a proper historian on, a proper expert, but this week I haven't. <laughs> Instead, I have got uh, the wonderful comedian and writer, Mr. David Mitchell. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And I yeah. mean, but you're here also in, in your sort of, with your new hat Yes. Your new historian's hat. Yes. And um, <laughs> yes, I've officially been issued my historian's hat. I did do history at university. Yes. So I'm, I'm, you have some qualifications. I'm, I'm allowed the hat. I've certainly got no qualifications in anything else. So the reason I've asked you on, David, is you have your own history book coming out, Unruly, 
A History of England's Kings and Queens. You've beaten me to it. <laughs> um, and I'd love to get you back to just talk about your book, which maybe we could do next week or mm -hmm. so. But for now, I've been sort of picking my way through the Wars of the Roses, mm -hmm. um, stumbling and getting caught in lots of brambles. Um, <laughs> and I'm s sort of getting to the end of it. But you, as someone who's had to make sense of it for your book... <laughs> Perhaps we could talk a bit about Edward V and how we ended up there. And, I mean, do you have your own theory on who killed him? I think Edward V and his brother were murdered by order of Richard uh, of Gloucester, who by that point had probably already been crowned Richard III. I think that the obvious explanation, I think, is... It's Occam's razor, really, isn't it? Yeah, you think he did all these other terrible things at the time. <laughs> Why would he not have done that just to complete it? I mean, exactly. I think, And the, the, the thing is, the people who say Richard III has been, you know, slandered by history and actually he was lovely, seem to, and he didn't murder the princes in the tower and maybe Henry VII did, seem to miss the point. He definitely made himself king. Yes. I mean, he definitely did that. And, and that's definitely not what his brother Edward IV wanted. His brother Edward IV wanted the Prince of Wales, who we call Edward V, to be the next king. And that did not happen. And we know from the next uh, several decades, anyone with a slightest claim to the throne was a tremendous thorn in the side of whoever's on the throne. So I just don't see why Richard III, who also may have murdered Henry VI, wouldn't have, isn't the prime suspect for doing away those two boys. Yeah. Um, and therefore was a nasty piece of work and we don't need to feel that sorry that he died at Boswell. Well, you know, you're in, you're in danger of creating a terrible... Twitter storm. We can't call it a Twitter storm. What do we call it? An X storm? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, that is the... Well, anyway, because, yeah. the, the, because the Ricardians are quite a vocal group, the supporters of Richard, who uh, claim yeah. he was very unfairly maligned. I mean, I have to say I'm with you. You think you want to clear a path to the throne... You should get rid of Richard III first. He's the bigger obstacle, well, surely. It's, the problem is people get overexcited by this notion of Tudor propaganda. Yes. And there was Tudor propaganda, and the Tudor propaganda was saying that the royal house that they'd supplanted weren't nice, and that was, the propaganda was bound to say that. But the fact that the propaganda says one thing doesn't necessarily mean that the polar opposite is the truth. <laughs> and that, that, that actually Richard III was the nicest fellow you could imagine being on the throne, which sort of seems to be the contrary conclusion that they've jumped to. Um, you know, it may not have been as dysfunctional a regime as the Tudors claimed in their desperation to cobble together some sort of right to rule, <laughs> but it doesn't make him a nice guy. And how could Henry VII possibly have killed the princes in the tower? Why were they missing throughout Richard III's reign so, so as to still be hanging around for Henry VII to murder? I'm not saying Henry VII wouldn't have murdered them. He probably would if he'd turned up in the tower <laughs> and there they are, just all fine. But nobody's seen them for years. But it just seems vanishingly unlikely that Richard III would have taken that risk. Well, it, it is like the classic conspiracy theorist of, like... I know more than those so-called yeah. experts, those posh, out-of-touch elite yeah. who think they own history. I've done my own research yeah. on, well, the, on the internet. <laughs> and Richard, well, Richard was, as you say, you know, it, it, it just doesn't Well, the classic thing, uh, the conspiracy theory thing, is the conspiracy theorists, in general, they like to think of themselves as questioning people. Yes. So they question the orthodoxy. Fair enough. Go ahead, question the orthodoxy. What they don't question is the next dumb thing that enters their heads. <laughs> the thing is, if you want to be a questioning person, you've got to keep questioning. Yes. And it may be that regrettably and unexcitingly, what you're questioning t takes you back round to is the orthodoxy. Because <laughs> the orthodoxy isn't usually imposed for some malevolent reason. It's usually the summation of well, a lot no, of conclusions. It's, it's, if, if you dig down deep enough, it's always the work of Satan. <laughs> Well, yes, obviously the word, but you know, I am, I am uh, Satan's servant, so I'm, you know, that's that's fine by me. So, I mean, it's interesting that in your book you you say Edward V never really was Edward V. Well, I, I mean, he wasn't, was he? He wasn't crowned. Yeah, but you don't have to be crowned. No, I know you don't. You just have to be in the line of succession. But he didn't really do any 
I mean, there was a, he was briefly proclaimed and then he went to the Tower of London and then mm. that's it. So you could see a world in which, you know, Richard III claimed he shouldn't be king, claimed that he was in some way illegitimate because the Woodvilles were dodgy, um, a dodgy family who sort of entrapped Edward the uh, fourth. So Richard III, if Richard III had carried on ruling and a successor of his called Edward had been king after him, he would undoubtedly have been crowned Edward V. They right. wouldn't have kept Edward, son of Edward IV, in the numbering mm. if the House of York had continued to rule. But the Tudors then made sure that Henry VIII's son, Edward, is is. Edward VI. Yes, in order to underline the dastardly nature mm. of the king who Henry's father supplanted. That's why he's in the numbering. Lady Jane Grey is, in a sense, as, as much a, an effective ruler as Edward V was. But I don't think if there was a, a new Jane crowned uh, in our current monarchy, she'd be crowned Jane II. In my book, no. I give both Edward V and Lady Jane Grey a little chapter because, right. I mean, it's the least well, we I, can I, do for the poor well, people. Well, <laughs> I will probably give Lady Jane Grey an episode in this series, even though she's not in the rhyme. Yeah. Although there yeah. is a sort of addendum at the end, some versions of the rhyme, there's a sort of apology to her for leaving her out. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's nice. Uh, um, but yeah. I shall also do an episode on, on Cromwell. Who was king in all but name? No, I, I, I support that. Will you do an episode on Richard Cromwell, his son? Yeah. Uh, well, he seemed to have been a bit rubbish. Yes. So yeah. I'll probably stick him in in Oliver Cromwell's yeah. episode. Mm. I, I don't want to give him a whole episode to himself. I don't think there'd be enough to fill it, fill <laughs> it out. You know. No. So to get back to Edward and the Wars of the Roses. When you were writing your book, did you manage to make sense of it all and, and, and to retain the information? Certainly the bit of my book about the Wars of the Roses coincided with a short period of my life when I got my head round it and now it's gone. And oh, so if well, I, 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 need to, I need to go back and check on it. It is. I mean, it's one of those things which the very top level is very simple. It was a dynastic dispute between two branches of the same family. But once you go beyond that... yeah. It's like opening a door into madness. It's it's the bit where there's two kings, and then the guy that's made the you. second king, king changes king, and yeah. goes and, and remakes the first one. That feels unnecessary. That's you know. <laughs> well, it certainly didn't bother trying to fit it into the rhyme at that point, which should have gone one, two, three. Ned's Richard two, Henry's four, five, six. Then who? Edward the fourth, Henry again, and then Edward again. But, but, yeah, no, I mean, they didn't do that because it didn't really work as a rhyme. So the rhyme is not necessarily that helpful. I think I've briefly made sense of it in my own mind, but I've only retained some of the information. I have a vague, as I sit here now, I have a vague worried sense of there being more than one Battle of St Albans and not really remembering which oh, one's were, which. No, there were two. I think it's the second one that Henry VI sits through singing under a tree. Yes, and he that it was at the second Battle of St Albans. I think that, that he was recaptured. Yes, by Margaret of Anjou, and I, you know, I did, I did ask. I think it was Helen Castor. I said, why did they keep taking Henry to these battles? Because whoever won would take him home with them, <laughs> as a sort of prize, a party bag. And she said, well, where else could they put him? You know, if you put him in a castle, then the enemy just goes and besieges the castle. So they had to lug the poor sod around. <laughs> And, and yeah, I think the Second Battle of Albans wasn't much of a battle, but Margaret managed to catch Henry and, and carry on south. And, but the first one was where it all kicked off. Yes. And it, it wasn't really a battle at all, and it was in, in the sort of, actually in the town centre. And it was, yes, a bit of a scuffle, but quite a few bigwigs were killed. Yes, well, yeah. Warwick the Kingmaker and Richard of York went in and basically said, let's just bump off as many of our opponents as we can and then say to the king... Oh, but we still love you. Yeah. <laughs> but there's nobody else in court who can stand up to it. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's, it is an interesting aspect of history, isn't it? It is, how important is it to know the specific dates and the names of the battles? Some of the guests I have on will be able to rattle these things off. But, you know, I, I can't retain that information. And I, I still, do you still do that thing if someone says it was the 15th century, you think... That's the 1400s, yes? <laughs> I, I mean, yes. No, I, I do a quick 
bit of maths, a quick takeaway one yes. in my head. But um, but I enjoy that, though. I enjoy the fact that it's the 1800s or the 19th century. But it's I think a, for a lot of a, people, they just think, history's so complicated with all this stuff, I'm not going to learn any of it. <laughs> because, you know, someone will ask me a date and I yeah. won't know it. But, you know, I, I think a broader understanding of how things fitted together and roughly when they happened is, is much more important than what date the yes. Battle of Taunton was. Y- y- yes. And yeah. the, the, it's uh, what I take away from the Wars on the Roses and what I think is f- the funny thing about it <laughs> is that you have on one side Henry VI who doesn't want to be king, who is useless, <laughs> is, is a ha- nice guy, a harmless, weak man who would do, you know, nasty, a nasty thing to no one but in whose name terrible things are done and he is as you say like this like this object of kings he's like an enlarged crown <laughs> a crown with an idiot attached <laughs> Uh, and he would just very happily retire but unfortunately he's not allowed to retire he's either got to be king or he's got to be dead and uh he, he both things happen to him and on the other side you have the very motivated yorkists and initially richard and then his son edward and they really do want to be king and it's a it's a real Build up for Richard, Duke of York, um, before he starts giving battle in vain to remind people of the rainbow. Uh, he, he, you know, for ages he pretends, no, the king is fine. I'll be the king's servant. I just got to rein in the king's bad advice. I've got to basically just run things for the king, but he can be king. I'm not claimed to be king. And then at some point he snaps and he goes to Parliament and he goes. Yeah, I want to be king. I want to be king. The king's an idiot. I should be king. I've got this line of succession. I'm a Plantagenet. Make me king. And then he dies about the next day in a battle. Yeah. So um, and and that's that. That was a real. You know, if you were writing a film, it's like, what? Wait a minute. No, you can't just kill him at this point. Surely this guy's going to be the king. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) A really a real build up, and that's one of the things that's unsettling, but also funny about the whole medieval period is you never really know when someone might die. There's so Mm. many battles, and there's so much disease, and so many underlying conditions rife in everyone that you you just don't know that they won't just drop dead like Mm. that. And which is maybe one of the reasons people went along with bad kingship because they just thought, well, you never know. He could (laughs) he might just die tomorrow. People do. Now it was really interesting that you you did the rainbow mnemonic yeah. there, because that's I've only just realised who that Richard of York is. Uh, you know, there are so many bits of our history that are sort of little nuggets of them <laughs> hidden away, and you know, how many people if you said to them, well, they know the rhyme, you say to them, well, who was Richard of York? <laughs> and they say, oh, is that the same as the grand old Duke of York who had ten thousand men? Uh, it is fascinating, those, those little bits. Well, I'm assuming it's that Richard. He's the most famous Richard of Europe, I think. Well, it I must think. be, yeah. yes. And he gave battle in vain. He certainly did, yeah. In as much as, yeah, he yeah. was killed <laughs> and never took the throne. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and if that hadn't happened, they'd have had to find someone else to, to, to create a mnemonic yeah. out of. <laughs> Maybe there was an Anglo-Saxon sort of red walled of Yeovil. <laughs> I'm going to think of a good mnemonic. Hang on. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, red walled of Yeovil grew beetroot in vases. <laughs> um, right. Sorry. So we should get back to our story. Henry the Sixth didn't conveniently die and leave the throne open for Richard of York. But he did go bonkers. I mean, it's, it's a t- terrible indictment on the reign of Henry VI, is that the point at which he suddenly became literally inert and unable to do anything except breathe, and he had to be <laughs> carried from room to room and fed in this, for this sort of whole year because he's so he's broken down completely at the shock of losing all of his possessions in France. Uh, there is no <laughs> discernible decline in the standard of government. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed, when he wakes up from it, no improvement. <laughs> Basically, nothing he did was any good. Which led to this sort of crazy hot desking between Henry and Edward, who, who take it in turns to sit on the throne. I mean, but, but Edward did seem to restore a certain amount of stability to the nation when he was finally in place. But then he's another king who goes and dies young. But also, he's a good king, Edward. Yes. I mean, by the standard, he's pretty capable. But then there's the, the weird thing that he, because he uh, takes a shine to Elizabeth Woodville, who does a, very much plays a sort of Anne Boleyn 
card. Um, although if it was called that at the time, then we've proved the existence <laughs> of the time machine. But uh, in that she insists on marrying Edward if he's going to be allowed to have sex with her. Yes. And his marrying of this quite low-ranking noblewoman is squandering an extremely precious royal resource uh, in the politics of the day. The hand-in marriage of the King of England is a, a big thing that you should expect to get something for, um, and not just the loyalty of a small bunch of impecunious noblemen. And Warwick, the kingmaker, was planning all sorts of big dynastic marriages for Edward and thinking this is going to be great for the kingdom. And then Edward finally let slip, I'm terribly sorry, I've already married this lady here. And Warwick is furious. And basically this leads to Warwick abandoning the Yorkist cause and deciding to take up with Henry. Although, you know, poor Henry was barely aware of it. Ludicrous. And then, of course, when... Richard comes to the throne, he makes great claims that even before Elizabeth Woodville, that Edward had been betrothed to someone else, that he'd made another marriage, presumably, well, agreed to another marriage, presumably again, <laughs> to get them into bed. Yes, it's not implausible uh, <laughs> as a claim. <laughs> yes, I think there's an alternative series on the part that sex has played in, in, in history. <laughs> yeah, well, it's the only real thing that uh, Edward IV does wrong. He's very good in battle. Mm. He's pretty good in politics. He's quite even-handed. When he becomes effectively king, he, he runs the place quite well. He doesn't, unlike almost all of his predecessors, have a futile and costly war in France. He has a bit of a go and ends up getting bought off quite effectively by the king of France. So he's, he's a really, really good king. But his physical urges are his undoing. And initially, the physical urge of uh, making him marry Elizabeth Woodville, which mm. results in the, um, uh, the re-adeption, as it's called, mm. of Henry VI. Uh, but then he gets over that problem. But then ultimately, he dies young because he eats and drinks himself. So you're death. going with the moral view on that he was punished for... for enjoying the pleasures of the world too much. It's, it's not and, the old... And, and, and it killed him. I think it's the modern view that if you eat and drink massively to excess, you're quite likely to die younger. <laughs> I, don't, I don't take a moral position on that. I think it's a shame for the kingdom. Well, you, well, you know, you, you, you said he only really did one thing wrong. I would argue that he did two things wrong and that dying young was the second thing because it left his brother good old Uncle Richard in charge of looking after his son Edward. Mm. And, and it really does seem that nobody at the time thought he might misbehave and that he might have aim, aims on the throne. And a lot of historians say, well, he probably didn't at this point, but it, it sort of slowly fell into place. Well, he's frightened of the Woodvilles, isn't he? Yeah, so the first thing he does is, is, is yeah. Yeah, kill uh, some of them. Yeah. When, and, you know, it's a, it's a classic theme running through history of I've got no argument with the king, the king's fine, but his advisers are, are terrible and they're making him do awful things, so we'll, we need to get rid of them, yes. execute them if we can. Yeah. And Richard is only doing that, and, and again at the time he's saying, yeah, I'm preparing for the coronation of, of young Edward, but mm. these guys, they're going to screw it all up, so we've got to deal with them. Yes, and then at some point he thinks... Actually, no. <laughs> but the bit that I found extraordinary is that Elizabeth Woodville was persuaded to hand her other son, Richard, over. And yes. that, uh, you know, even with a bishop telling you that, you, she must have thought, well, is, is this the right thing to do? And Because <laughs> Richard had already killed her brother. <laughs> was she in fear for her own life? I mean, presumably. But it seemed to be, or... you know, but the theme with all these women is... It's about the son. The son is yeah. the one who can have the power. She would never be queen, but Edward, and then if Edward dies, then Richard is the heir to the throne, and that's, that's the thing you've got to hang on to. So I don't think she would have given up her son in order just to protect herself. What, do you think she trusted Richard then? Well it, well, it looks a bit like that, yeah. You know, maybe she was persuaded enough to say, well, well, you know, he's dodgy, but he wouldn't dare harm the rightful king and his brother. So maybe it's best, you know, not to piss him off too much. I mean, I, I'm going to be talking to Matthew Lewis, who is chairman of the Richard III Society, in the next episode. So perhaps he can throw some light on this. 
But I mean, this whole process from Richard putting King Edward V in the tower for his own safety to taking the throne for himself, I mean, it's often presented as a kind of bang, bang, bang. He catches Earl Rivers, he kills him, puts Edward in the tower, kills him, makes himself king. But, but actually, it all happened over the course of a few months. And, you know, maybe he did start out with good intentions, but slowly changed his mind and thought, actually, you know, for the stability of the country and the good of the people and to keep order, it's probably better if I take the throne rather than a small child, because whenever you put a child on the throne, it causes huge problems. So maybe, you know, he did the right thing. Best to just suffocate them with their own pillows. Well, thank you, David, for joining me to talk about poor old Edward and the ramifications of the bloody Wars of the Roses. And as I say, perhaps I can make more sense of Richard by talking to a proper historian next week. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you said you were talking to the head of the Ricardians. I I don't think he's necessarily come out as I am a Ricardian. Oh, right. So um, I'm hoping for a nuanced take. But we shall see. I look forward to listening to it. Yes. So that is Matthew Lewis who will be my guest in the next episode. And yes, as I say, thank you, David. And would you like to come back and talk about your book? I would. Yes. Well, well let's do yeah, that. Yeah. My book with only a tiny bit of it is about Edward V. Yes, so it's so, it's yeah. only about two pages. The chapter yeah. on yeah. Edward V. <laughs> so well done for dragging that out. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, uh, no, well, I look forward to talking to you about your book in a future episode when when the book is actually in the shops. What's the publication date? The twenty eighth of September. Fantastic. And that book is Unruly, A History of England's Kings and Queens by my special guest today, the brilliant David Mitchell. In the next episode, we'll be looking in much more detail at the life of Richard III. And as I say, my guest will be Matthew Lewis, chairman of the Richard III Society. Follow or subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it when it drops. Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Hickson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Hickson, 2023.